episode two of the Ways of Working podcast. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, really excited that we got some, you know, very positive feedback from our first introductory episode. If you haven't checked that out, please go and do it. It's only about five minutes. Tells, uh, you know, some of the things that I'm going to talk about on the podcast, as well as, you know, types of guests I'm going to bring in and focus areas and some areas that uh, I'm personally passionate about, and I hope others are too. So. Now, today on the podcast episode, we're going to be talking about emotional intelligence. Now, stay with me here because I can sense eyes are rolling already, you know, talking about emotions, but it's going to be great. Trust me. Uh, So emotions and our reactions, these, you know, can make or break, you know, how well a day goes for us. It can either be, you know, a really great day with lots of highs or it can be full of super lows. And, you know, we've all experienced both uh, at the office. You know, I consider this to be one of the single most important areas of focus um, to be a high-performing individual, uh, to build high-performing teams, and just to operate better as an organization. You know, emotions can get in the way uh, a lot for good and bad reasons. You know, they can bring about, you know, a tremendous amount of chaos or they can bring about uh, order, which can come from the chaos. But anyways, um, they can be about good versus evil, so people can use them for you know, great things to, you know, empower teams and build people up and build strong relations, or people can use them for various, you know, ne- very nefarious reasons, such as manipulating individuals and obviously a lot of, you know, darker and more, you know, evilly focused things. So um, they're both our superpowers and our kryptonite. And so as humans, we can use them for, again, a lot of good and bad. Uh, but, you know, what is emotional intelligence and why is it so important? Um, these are some of the questions I'm going to answer today and, and provide some more details on. And, you know, I first stumbled across the concepts and discussions of emotional intelligence back in like 2000, 2001. And there was a course offered by an employer at the time uh, that introduced some of these concepts at a very high level of self-awareness, self-regulation, building relationships, empathy, uh, you know, some of these pieces. And, you know, I was immediately intrigued. I started to dig a little deeper into Daniel Goleman's writings on emotional intelligence. Uh, That was the, you know, his work was the basis for a lot of those courses. And, you know, how do I incorporate these aspects of emotional intelligence into, you know, my repertoire to be a a better leader, a better individual? How do I help uh, others grow as well as myself? And, you know, years would pass and I would see discussions of EI come up, you know, empathy would be, you know, preached and broadcasted by a number of individuals, you know, high profile individuals, um, you know, in the enterprise world, you hear things, empathy, self-awareness, and, you know, I, I would see it and I'd be mindful of it and, 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 you know, maybe share some articles, but it didn't really become uh, as prominent as around 2012, 2013. And my wife and I were about to have our second child. And as parents, we're always wanting to be better parents. And as we were discovering, you know, things that would be great to read about, you know, positive parenting and raising, you know, super awesome humans in this world, we discovered Dr. Laura Markham and her peaceful parenting practices and, and, and philosophies. And in her literature, she describes emotional intelligence as being smart with your emotions. So as a parent, be smart with your emotions for when you're raising kids and then you'll raise happy, happy, healthful, uh, healthy kids and um, to the best of your abilities. Um, Now, this is simple and effective, quite easy to understand. And as a father of three now uh, in 2019, that resonated me with a lot and and still resonates with me, you know, both personally and professionally. I see a lot of similarities between um, how we parent as to how, you know, individuals, including myself, uh, operate at the office. So when I'm out pro- providing consulting services or out working with individuals, whether it's at a meetup or an event or even, you know, in the office, I see so many similarities that it drew me to actually do this podcast and actually talk more about it and talk about the relationship between parenting and work and why there are so similar, so many similarities, the patterns in each and some of the things that we can do as individuals, regardless if you're a parent or not, obviously it's gonna help if you are because you'll understand some of those dynamics at home, um, and, and what we can do uh, to utilize emotional intelligence and, and, and look into it deeper to make us better individuals uh, to be essentially rock stars at work. And so, you know, I, because I was so intrigued by Dr. Markham's literature and we continue to, to you know read her books and reference it and she has you know, some great things. Um, I actually asked her if she wanted to be on this podcast. So, you know, it really, it really came into, 
you know, dovetailed together quite nicely because I asked Dr. Markham, hey, would you like to come on and talk about emotional intelligence as it relates to both parenting as well as work? And she was more than happy to join. And so uh, very exciting. So not only am I going to be talking about it, it's going to be more Dr. Markham talking about it because she knows more about it than me. And I think that's awesome that our first guest um, is an important one such as Dr. Markham. And so I'm very excited that she is actually going to be joining us today on this podcast. And so Dr. Markham is the author of many books, including Peaceful Parent, Happy Kids, How to Stop Yelling and Start Connecting, Peaceful Parent, Happy Siblings, How to Stop the Fighting and Raise Friends for Life. And she has a latest book out called The Peaceful Parent, Happy Kids Workbook. And this is using mindfulness and connection to raise resilient, joyful children and rediscover your love of parenting. Dr. Markham earned her PhD in clinical psychology at Columbia University and has worked as a parenting coach with countless families all over the world. Over 140,000 moms and dads, me included, enjoy Dr. Laura Markham's weekly coaching posts via email. Uh, you can sign up on her page, on her website, ahaparenting.com, which we'll provide in the notes. And you can sign up for her courses there. You can sign up for her, her weekly newsletters. And it serves up aha moments for parents of babies through teens. And so her inspiration is to change the world one child at a time by supporting the parents. And she is the proud mother of two young, thriving adults who are raised with her peaceful parenting approach. And she lives with her husband in New York. And so I have read her books and subscribed to her online parenting course uh, because it's very important for me to grow as an individual and as a parent as it is to grow, you know, at the office and try to do the best I can there as well. And so in order to do that, in order to grow, you have to learn from others. It's very beneficial. And so with that, um, you know, in one of her books, she began to talk about emotional intelligence within the first few pages of Peaceful Parent, Happy Kids. She notes that when it comes to parents, you need to focus on regulating yourself, fostering connection, and coaching, not controlling your kids. So learning to be aware of your emotions and how to regulate, regulate them, building deep connections with your kids, and finally coaching them to be outstanding humans versus trying to control them. Because if you are a parent, you know controlling never works. Um, it might for the short term, but it'll have drastic effects otherwise. Um, so... Now think about those pieces, regulating yourself, fostering connection, coaching, not controlling. Do any of these sound familiar to you? They should. Um, if they don't, no big deal. That's cool. We're here to talk about it today. Um, but they really should because at work, these are big deals. The, you are constantly having to deal with situations that are good, bad, and ugly. And you need to be able to deal with that um, in a professional manner. And that is going to result in you needing to regulate your emotions and, and be able to deal with situations at work, no matter how big or small they are. Uh, fostering connections, it's very important to have relationships, your tribes, your networks, your meetups, your, you know, your go-to group of individuals. Some people have work wives and work husbands as a joke, um, um, but it's not. They have deep relationships with those individuals where they trust them, they work very well together. You know, there's a chemistry that exists. And then there's coaching, not controlling. We all know that um, coaching and mentoring is extremely important. Um, to grow as an individual uh, at work and, and uh, personally as well. And so <clears throat> it's very important to keep those in focus. And so this is where, again, these patterns start to come about where it's like, well, uh, parenting is very similar to things you would experience at work. And so I'm pumped for today's conversation, you know, to get into these, you know, more discussion around emotional intelligence. Um, because if you want to unlock greatness, you need to become more emotionally intelligent. You know, and notice we're not talking about subduing them. No, no, no. We're not talking about, you know, banking your emotions away for nine to five or, you know, eight to six or whatever it is you work. No, 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 no. We're, we're talking about much more than that. And, you know, I'm, I'm really excited for this conversation today. And so without further ado, I would like to introduce our very special guest today, Dr. Laura Markham. So like all new things, I'm still learning how to do podcasting properly. And we had some slight technical difficulties uh, at the very beginning of the podcast, entirely my fault. Uh, so the introduction of Dr. Markham was unfortunately cut off. Uh, so we're jumping into the conversation where Dr. Markham is actually talking about, uh, you know, a bit of her past and where she actually had a, a great amount of experience working in 
an industry and, and not just as a doctor. And so we're going to jump right into that story. Uh, you didn't miss anything. There's still a tremendous amount of uh, extremely valuable and, and very pertinent detail that Dr. Markham goes into over the next while. Uh, you know, so I, I invite you to, to continue listening and jump right in and listen, keep those headphones on and, uh, and have a listen to Dr. Markham. She has some, some amazing things to, to talk about for us and to us uh, about today. So listen in. I used to, when I got out of college, I started a weekly newspaper oh, great. and I ran, uh, the business for, uh, years and, yep. um, then I left to go get my PhD in psychology. So oh, I was a journalist and uh, led a team prior to, I, I had studied psychology as an undergrad, but prior to getting my PhD. So I see myself as having um, in, you know, integrated the world of work and you know, what, what do people bring with them into the world of work from childhood? Because of course my my first love and my, what ended up as the work of my life has been supporting parents to raise wonderful children. But there's always the question of what do those kids then bring into the workplace? Right. So I think uh, it's a great, it's a very interesting question to ask. Well, that's, that, that is very cool that you had that background. And so, so let's talk about like, why, why is it so important then? Like, so you, you know, this is your passion and you know, why is this, why is AHA parenting so important? What led to it? You know, how did you transition from that, you know, uh, you know, working in journalism and, and running a, a team at that point to, to then becoming a, a doctor and, and where you are today? Well, I was always very interested in child development, but I wanted to change the world. So I thought it was too slow to do that in a therapy room, uh, to do it through psychology. That's what I thought when I was in college. And I thought, you know, if you give people information, they'll make wise decisions. So I began to go into journalism, started a newspaper. And in the end, my, I was not doing journalism. I was doing more the administration of the newspaper. Uh, my partner was the editor of the paper. And we worked together very well, but I wasn't doing so much the creative work. And I mean, not that administration can't be creative, but that's what I was doing. And I was good at it, but I really missed psychology. And my true love, what I got excited about was child raising and psychology. So I went back to school to get my PhD in clinical psychology. That's how I transitioned into the work that I do now. It was a gradual path. I wasn't sure that I was going to work with parents at all. I was just doing psychology and then uh, okay. yeah. gradually moved into uh, what happened was I had children. And wow. I, as I was finishing my PhD studies, my son was born. And I realized, oh my goodness, parents need more support. This is the hardest job in the world. And I'm reading research studies that are helping me make wise decisions, but they're not getting anything. What kind of support are parents getting? Nothing. So that's, that's how I made the transition. But why is it so important? I think the world we're creating will be populated by human beings who are who they are largely because of how they were parented. Now that doesn't mean that society doesn't have an impact. It has a huge impact, but collectively we create society. So how we're raising our kids is going to have a, you know, uh, it's going to change what the world is just by who populates it. And why do you think parents are, are you know, so scared to, to deal with emotions? Like whenever the topic of emotions come up, people are kind of like, they might hum and haw over it or, you know, they, they tend to, to skirt away from it a bit. And especially as parents, it's, you know, one of those pieces that, you know, people don't really like to talk about or, or it's just an avoided topic. Well, I think emotions are hard for all of us. They're, you know, they're unruly, they're, they're, um, you know, inconvenient. They come up at inconvenient times. We find ourselves feeling hurt and reacting from that hurt, even if we don't want to be hurt. And we find ourselves angry uh, at something that, you know, really probably didn't merit being angry. But when you're angry, it's hard to calm down and not act from that anger. So I think all of us have experienced how hard emotions can be, how challenging they can be. And that makes us scared of them. I think also when we were kids, our parents didn't necessarily know how to handle emotions. You know, John Gottman, who is 
one of the foremost researchers in the United States on family dynamics. He's famous for his work on couples, but he does have one book on raising an emotionally intelligent child. Mm -hmm. And he actually, I think, coined that phrase because he watched parents deal with their kids. And he realized that most parents are uncomfortable with kids' emotions. They, when the child gets emotional, they tell the child not to be emotional. They, they basically criticize the child, you know, um, don't act like that. Don't you raise your voice to me. Yeah. Or they shame the child. Oh, a little scratch like that didn't hurt. Or, you know, your brother wouldn't be crying about that. Or they, um, they just give the child the message that the, the emotions are not allowed. Like you go to your room until you can calm down. Right. And, or they distract. Sometimes they're, they don't criticize the child, but they, they give the child the emotion, the message that the emotions are not okay by distracting the child. Like, oh no, no, don't cry. Here, we'll go see if we can find a cookie. You know, don't cry. We'll buy you another one. And, you know, I think kids are not, kids are learning from us every minute of every day. What's the appropriate thing to do in X circumstance? Oh, here we are at the slide. We wait our turn. Here we're getting a present from Aunt Mary. We say thank you. You know, here we are having a big emotion. Oh, we go eat something. <laughs> you know, like, okay, that's the answer. That's what you do. Yeah. Right? But, but we, we inadvertently teach them these things because we're uncomfortable with emotions ourselves. Right. And, you know, what, like, for those that, because obviously there's some that will, recognize that they have you know this issue or, or this concern or that they're scared but then there's those who you know that they're not aware of it they you know unconsciously don't think about it and you know they they don't know that they have necessarily an issue with regulating connecting coaching uh, but it's clearly evident they do just by their actions maybe the the partner recognizes it or you know colleagues or the kids may bring it up in, in some form or another like how what, what do what can people do if if that's something that they're encountering you mean if they're the the partner and they're noticing this or the colleague or the child noticing this or do you mean if they get the feedback that they're that they need to yeah, pay attention to yeah it's if they get the feedback right like the okay. partner might have said something to them or or someone has said something to them that, that that's given them feedback um because this would translate obviously to same to the, uh, to the working world where you might get a 360 feedback or something sure, that sure. people have a hard time dealing with things, especially if they're not aware of it, and then they don't actually think they have the problems that they may actually do have. So I would say the first thing with any kind of feedback is to encounter it with curiosity. Hmm. So I've gotten this feedback, or I'm getting this feedback re- you know, repeatedly, right. or this feedback's in my 360. Now, maybe it was one person in your 360 and everybody else said the opposite. In that case, I wouldn't worry about it, right? But if you're getting it from more than one person or from your partner repeatedly, maybe it only comes out at home or maybe it only comes out at work or maybe it only comes out with your subordinates but not with your boss or whatever. If you're getting this feedback, what usually happens to to us is when we encounter criticism of any kind, we feel it's an attack. And when we're under attack, we go into a state of emergency. And a state of emergency in mammals means stop, drop. I mean, means um, uh, fight, flight, or freeze. And the response is to stop, drop, and breathe. But what happens is we go into a state of emergency. We either want to fight back. They don't know what they're talking about. Or I wouldn't do that if you didn't always provoke me or whatever. We want to fight with the information. Or we want to run from it. I can't talk about this now right? Or we want to freeze, like, don't attack me, just don't attack me. I'm just going to tear up here a little bit and sit here and not say anything so you'll be gentle with me, right? So those are, those are very common responses when we feel criticized. But none of them are actually appropriate because criticism, even if it's done in a not very skillful way, criticism is always an opportunity for us. We forget that. We get so defensive and And we feel we're under attack, but actually the universe is giving us feedback and it's in the form of what our partner just said to us or our child or our colleague, but it's an opportunity for us to grow, to take our game up a notch, to be more effective in our relationships or our work or work relationships, to get better, 
at the job of being a human being. That's an opportunity. So if we could instead, so when you feel under threat, stop, drop, drop your agenda to fight back in this moment. You know, I want to fight back against this, yeah. this feedback. Drop your agenda and breathe. Just take a deep breath. And maybe that doesn't calm you enough and you need to take three deep breaths or 10. That's fine. <laughs> stop, drop, and breathe. And then just, just get curious. Maybe you need a little um, reminder, uh, what I call a mantra, but it, it's just a little mental reminder to talk your mind off the cliff because your mind is going, I knew it, they don't understand me, or my partner always blames me, or my child always misbehaves and then says, oh, it's because I yelled at him that he did whatever, or my colleague acts like it's my fault, but if only they had done X, Y, Z. So we, we want to be defensive. So instead of that, the mantra could be, hmm, let's get curious. What can I learn here? Regardless of them, because, you know, we always think it's a 50-50 thing. Like if my colleague would clean up their act, then I cleaned up mine. It's 50-50 problem, right? If we're having a problem with somebody. Yeah. The truth that I've noticed is it's always 80-20. Now, that may be 50-50, but if you clean up your end of the bargain, it gets rid of 80% of the problem. Isn't that bizarre? But if they clean up their end of the bargain, it gets rid of 80% of the problem too. We have more power than we realize. So... If you just get curious, if you say, if your little mantra is, okay, I don't need to feel like I'm under attack here. No, it's all okay. The universe is helping me get better at what I'm doing. Okay, what, how can I listen to this? What can I learn from this? And then listen to the feedback again. And maybe the feedback is that you need to get better at dealing with emotions. Listen for the specifics of how it's affecting other people. Is it that you fly off the handle and raise your voice? Is it that you shut the conversation down and say, I can't deal with this right now? Is it that you blame someone else? What is, because we all have patterns and tendencies. I mean, the things that I just listed are things all of us have a tendency to do, and some of us are better at keeping it under control than others. But just notice what your tendency is that you're getting feedback about. And then notice when you do that. When you blame other people, what are you feeling underneath? It's it's an interesting thing. If you do this privately and maybe you journal about it, you just write down what comes to mind, not something for anyone else to read, not justifying your position, just writing down what comes to mind. Often you'll, in this last time when I, I started to blame my partner for this or my colleague for that, I actually felt like maybe I could have actually avoided it. Maybe if I'd been more alert, we could have avoided this. I could have thought, you know, I thought of it in that meeting at, at work and I didn't say it because it sounded far-fetched or it sounded like too much work, frankly, or it would all fall on me and I didn't say anything. And then when it happened, I blamed my colleague because I, I felt so defensive, but actually, partly it was from my own sense that I could have maybe done something, right? So maybe that's where it's coming from, the blame. Or maybe it's from something else. Maybe you feel like, you know, nobody in the organization ever stands up and takes responsibility and it all gets dumped on you. Well, that's something to really, something to dig deep on, to double click on and dig deep and sort through because maybe this isn't the right organization for you to be in or maybe this is a bigger thing to work through, right? But anything that you're getting feedback about is going to give you valuable information if you look at what were you feeling that led you to act that way. When you yelled at your kid, what were you feeling at that moment? I guess I was worried that he'd always be mean to his little sister that way and, and they'd never have a good relationship and that somehow I'm failing as a parent, right? It comes our blaming, our lashing out always comes from some, some feeling we were having inside ourselves. So ask that question too. Is what were you feeling at the root of it all then you think like it, it it seems to be like just based on what i'm hearing that you know self-regulation is like a fundamental footing similar to martial arts you have to learn these basics before you can advance is that you know self-regulation is that kind of the the basis for emotional intelligence and growing from there or like what, what do you mean yes yeah. i think it is but i i want to be careful to define our terms 
Okay. Because some people think when I say that, that I mean, they should always be calm and collected and never raise their voice and never get angry. And what I'm really saying is you don't need the drama. When you create drama, it's always to deflect from the information you're getting from the world. And it's, it's really usually telling you, stop, drop your agenda, take a deep breath, feel what you're feeling, feel it in your body, take a deep breath, feel it again. You might start to cry. You might notice you have waves of nausea. I mean, whatever it is, and you don't have to know what it's coming from. Once you let yourself feel it, then you won't be acting on it. So self-regulation means don't automatically act on it. Now, sometimes you can't stop. You don't have the privacy. You're engaged with another human being or a team of them, and you can't stop and do that private work. So in that case, I would say always stop, drop, and breathe. Re talk yourself off the cliff. Remind yourself, okay, this is, it would be inappropriate to get angry here in this situation. My job is to manage my own emotions and later I'm going to dig a little deeper and find out what this is about for me. Your job is always to deescalate the drama. Right. And, you know, in, in your, in your book, in one of your books, you mentioned um, this emotional backpack and, you know, the, you know, the part I had thought of is like, how do I always ensure I'm packing light? Right. So mm. can you just go into that a little bit about, you know, what is that emotional backpack and uh, why we do not want it to fill up? So the emotional backpack is my term for the feelings that you don't have the opportunity to process in the moment. Because if you think about it, if you had a completely leisurely life out in the tundra where you're with your tribe yeah. and you know you're gathering berries and nuts or whatever you're eating and all of a sudden you have a scare some predator is in the vicinity and you have to run or climb the tree or whatever you have to do your heart is beating fast and the predator moves on you're all safe it's all good you come down you re rejoin each other what happens you process that incident and this is true, by the way, for a gazelle, just it is, as it is for a human. The gazelle will roll on the ground. The gazelle will like shake themselves off. There's a little frisson of fear that might, you know, be rising from them as they shake. Uh, and this happens for every, when we have felt in danger, we process it afterwards. And as humans, because we use our words, we're verbal, we might tell the story. Yes, you were the first one who saw the predator, the, the lion. Um, the pride of lions coming over the hill and, and you sounded the alarm and the other, the person who says, saw the, the pride of lions says, yes, I, first I saw the, and I thought, oh no. And, and you tell the story and you all enlarge on it and you're laughing and you're complimenting each other and sharing your, those moments that were tough where somebody tripped and fell and you work it out. And then it's done and you're gone and it's gone. And as you're telling it, you, you have moments of, tingling and, and um, you know, trembling and tears and lots of laughter. And that processes the emotion. Now, we don't usually have that leisure in our lives now. And thank goodness, no prize of lions. <laughs> However, you ran for the subway or somebody cut you off in traffic and very nearly hit you. Yeah. And you felt this, um, this wash of fear that's like a a jolt, like a tingle of fear when that happened to you, or, or when you, you know, just missed the subway and your heart sank and you knew you'd be late to your meeting, or when you just pulled your child out as they were about to step into traffic. You know, we all have moments in the course of our day. Yep. And if we let ourselves feel them, they do vanish. They, those emotions have given us the signal they were trying to give us. That's what emotions are. Emotions are a sensation in the body that are telling us something important. And when we allow ourselves to feel the sensation in the body, sometimes you react by trembling or laughing or crying. Sometimes you react by um, talking and the talking does allow you to work out the feelings, especially as we gain 
more brain function that allows us to do that. Children do not have the ability to do that when they're very little. But, but what happens if you don't have that ability? You're in your office having a meeting and somebody says something that you feel like is really dismissive and it cuts you to the quick, but you can't say anything. You can't even tear up at that moment. And you know, you, you just gulp and you get your voice as steady as possible. And you say, well, I think there are a number of ways to look at this problem. I'm not sure it means that. I think it could mean X, right? So you're, you're, you're deflecting and you're, you're trying to defend your department or whatever you're doing, but you're not actually dealing with the feelings. And what happens then at the end of the day when you finally get home and you have a backpack full of that incident at work and the time you got caught off in traffic and the fact that your child was rude to you as you dropped them off at school this morning and, you know, wouldn't hug you goodbye in front of their friends and in fact said something sort of rude to you. And maybe it was just because he's 11 and he doesn't want to admit he even has parents at this point, much less give you a hug in front of his friends. But whatever, it still hurts you. And, you know, or your partner never responded to your text about X, Y, Z, or sent you an angry text just because you'd been in meetings all morning, you hadn't had a chance to get back to your partner, whatever. You, You get home at the end of the day and you have all this stuff unprocessed in your backpack. What do you do with it? And if you don't do anything with it, what happens? So- if you don't do anything with it, what happens is it drives your behavior because it makes you, it feels uncomfortable. So there's no actual backpack. It's the body. The body has all these unprocessed things. It'd be like the gazelle. Actually, they've done work where they've taken a rabbit who was exposed to something frightening, uh, like turned over and held down while there was a loud noise. And if it happens once, the rabbit goes and shakes themselves off and hops away and they're fine. But if it happens repeatedly, the rabbit becomes a, a wreck, nervous wreck of, of jitters and ticks, and you know, like physical, like jumps, jumpy and stuff. That tension affects the rabbit. It affects us. We come home and we're tense and we want to pour a drink to like unwind. And we just wish our children would stop being so noisy or jumping on us. And they certainly can't be fighting with each other. Oh my God, that drives me crazy. And my partner once again is going to rag on me because I forgot to stop and pick up the whatever, the dry cleaning. Oh my goodness. Didn't they understand what a hard day I had? So what's happening is we're entering our home with all this emotional baggage. Whereas if we'd had even 10 minutes to just let ourselves breathe and feel whatever came up in our body. We didn't even have to know what it was. Just let the body tell us and we breathe through it. We would be a lot more clear coming into our home. And this is if you've ever done meditation. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been to a lot of, I've meditated for many years and I've been to a lot of meditation retreats. And when you sit down at a meditation retreat, all this stuff that you've been packing comes up. And people at their first retreat often spend a lot of time crying and just moving through stuff. And even just sitting down on a daily basis to meditate, you might be resistant because you don't really want to feel that stuff, but you sit down and all, all of a sudden it's like, oh, oh, and it just engulfs you in you. And you maybe tears arise, tingles arise, but then you move through that and you're in this place of great spaciousness, which People ask me, what do I mean by the word spacious? It's, it's just a place where you're not burdened by all that weight. You're packing light, as you said. Mm-hmm. And we can all do this. And I would just say the number one way to find the, way, the ability to do this is to not spend the time on your screen. So when you're waiting in line at the dry cleaner, don't pull out your phone to check the phone. Just wait, breathe feel what's in your body. Just move through some of that stuff. It's, it's like emptying the garbage. It's like brushing your teeth. When you come into your home, you won't be bringing all that gunk with you. Yeah. And, and so, you know, with that, like if there are people who are kind of, you know, just getting introduced to emotional intelligence or maybe never even heard of this and, you know, they're just interested in learning how can I start to better regulate my emotions is mm-hmm. the use of the meditation or just even the stopping and pausing is that it is that that seems to be one way to start to learn to, to manage their emotions but do you have some other ways that you know you recommend for the audience as to you know how can i get started you know meditation, yes what what else can can they use to kind of add to their repertoire if you will yes so i would say the most important thing is stop drop and breathe because that will serve you in moments of crisis 
but you're right that you need to empty the emotional backpack on an ongoing basis. So limiting phone use and giving yourself times to just feel what's in your body and tolerate whatever arises, whatever those physical sensations are. Don't judge them. Don't, you don't have to have a story to go with them. You might think, oh, why am I feeling this feeling of dread? Oh, I wonder if it's because of X. You don't, that just gets your mind going on a story. It's not even useful. Just feel the feeling. And what you'll notice is the feeling of dread will change. It's like this heaviness in the pit of your stomach and you go, oh, and then it starts to change and it, it lightens and it maybe it becomes some anger. You realize, oh, I'm actually angry at somebody about something. And then that changes and then it becomes fear because often what's under our anger is, a, is some fear or some sadness. So just watch it change and breathe. So that's a way to get started. I would say that meditation, if you've never been a meditator, can be super hard. But there are so many benefits that are um, very, very, very well substantiated by science that I would advise people to start, start with something that's easy in terms of meditation. And the easiest thing you can do is to do very short meditations that are guided meditations. There are free apps. There are apps like Headspace, which I believe um, you pay for, but and which I haven't used. I've simply heard good things about. But there are many apps out there. And there are many free apps. And there are many free um, online um, uh, sources where you can just listen to a guided meditation that's anywhere from three minutes to 40 minutes, right? Yeah. And, you know, Tara Brock, B-R-A-C-H, uh, on her website has, um, well, she also has what she calls um, uh, their talks, basically, um, which is a tradition in the meditation community in, in uh, talking about um, things that will help you learn to be more mindful. But I'm not even suggesting you necessarily need to listen to those. If they're helpful, great. I'm suggesting her talks that are silent where she'll say, let's all just sit and meditate. So about half her talks are this. And she'll let you sit for a minute or two and then she'll say, notice how your mind has wandered and bring your mind back. Right. And then she'll say, notice the sounds in the room. And so all of them are a little different. And they're, they're, they're interesting enough because they're all a little different to keep you on track and wanting to try them. And it's nice to have somebody sort of help you stay on track as you learn to meditate. But if that even feels too hard, just use one of the other short little three-minute guided meditations. There are so many of them. And on my website for free, there are several of these, including a body scan. Okay. And the body scans are so useful because, again, they help you empty your backpack. So it's a great way, even if you can only do a body scan, because they're more like a half an hour usually, even if you can only do them once a week because they take more time, they're great to do once a week and sort of look at it as like I'm, I'm emptying the garbage from the week. Oh, that's very, that's very cool. I, mean, I actually haven't seen those ones, so I'm going to check out the body scans because I haven't seen those yet. I've been meditating off and on for a few years as well, and I, I, do, I do find the, the whole notion of the spaciousness and, and the release, it almost, you know, sometimes feels better than having a couple days off just doing 10 or 20 minutes of, of meditation. So I definitely personally find it quite, uh, quite satisfying and, and useful as well. You know, I want to say something about that, Adam. I'm so glad you said that, that it, it's such an odd idea. Meditating for 20 minutes can be more useful than taking a day off. But what that spaciousness does, it puts us, it moves us out of our daily mind. And the mind is fantastic. It's how we got to here. But it also has limitations and you see them everywhere in your world. Limitations like there's never enough. We have to be greedy, even though we have a planet that's short on resources, right? As an example. Or, you know, I have to win, right? That's a, the mind always needs to feel like it's winning and to be on top because it's always worried about surviving. The mind's job is not ha happiness and it's not connection. It's winning and um, uh, ensuring survival. So what happens when we meditate or move to that place of spaciousness that you said that's so powerful is that we move beyond the confines of the daily mind and into a place where the mind is not in charge, the ego is not in charge. What, what we tap into is source energy. And you can think of that source energy anywhere you want any way you like. 
you know, people, some people call it God, some people call it their higher self or their inner wisdom. It doesn't matter how, I mean, everybody can decide what it is for them, but I think of it as source energy and it's at, it's really at a more, um, it's at a higher level than the mind. It's, it's where you tap into love, connection, all the things that actually research shows make life meaningful. So anytime you're having a hard time, anytime you're stuck in life, you're feeling a lack, like I'm not good enough, or my life isn't good enough, or my partner isn't good enough, or my boss isn't good enough. And you know, sure, you may want to change jobs at some point, but it's best to change jobs from a place of I've done everything I can to make this workplace work well, and I've had a great success in it. And now I think I can do even more, and I'm ready to move on. That's very different than I hate this workplace, right? You'll create a much better new situation from that more abundant uh, and compassionate and uh, forgiving space. And the way you get there is by tapping into something that is more abundant and forgiving and spacious and compassionate than your mind. And that is, some people call it the level of the heart. Um, whatever it is, we know that when we meditate, we get there. And that's what it's like. I think of it as water. If, if I go for a few days where for whatever reason I don't meditate, I'm traveling, I'm just so busy. Yeah. What ends up happening is that I get thirsty. And it's, there's, it's a thirst that it's hard to describe, but I sit down to meditate and all of a sudden, I'm, my cup is being filled again. That's very interesting. I like that. It's like quenching your thirst and you're, you're back at a, at a normal level again, which is you know, obviously a good balanced place to be. Yes. And so how do you think the experience is as a parent, you know, kind of tying it back to, you know, you, know, you mentioned, you know, the, the passion for parenting, you had worked in, in you know, somewhat of a, a corporate or, or team oriented environment. How do the experiences as a parent, whether they're good, bad, or otherwise, um, make us a better person at work? So, you know, what because we see these patterns and the use of emotions and behaviors and mindset, you know, how can the experiences of being a parent help us um, at, at the, you know, in the work environment? Hmm. Well, one thing is that children will push every button you have. <laughs> so... People often say to me, I had a very responsible job in the workplace before my kids were born. And I was known as being cool, calm, and collected. And I thought nothing could phase me. And then I had kids. And oh my God, I realized I have, you know, this tendency to just flare up and lose it. I had no idea there was that part of me. Yeah. So kids will push your buttons. And that's great. That's the universe saying to you, hey, would you like to grow? Would you like to take your game up a notch? Let me show you where you got some work to do. Right. And we've all got work to do. We all do. None of us is a Zen master yet or you know, perfect. That's okay. That's great. So I think when we learn more about ourselves and what makes us tick and what pushes our buttons and we deactivate some of those buttons so that they're not flaring up and derailing us, you know, then we become better and more effective on the job as well, we become, we, we also become more compassionate to ourselves and our children, but also to coworkers. And, you know, I know that the workplace is a place to get work done, but we all make mistakes in the workplace. And so being more compassionate is a very helpful thing to be able to draw on. So you don't waste time blaming people, but you start looking for solutions. Yeah. And you know, you let yourself off the hook too when you screwed up because we all mess up. And you can say to yourself, okay, oh my God, I can't believe I blew that. I wish I had known X, Y, Z and I didn't know it. I found myself in a situation yesterday with my tech folks where I had wasted some time and money having a designer do something that wasn't going to work on the website that I, that I found out from them after the fact. And I was so irritated at myself that I was starting to be cranky in the meeting. And then I just stopped myself. And I was like, first of all, it's not their fault. They're just the messenger. And secondly, all right, so I learned something new. It's not the end of the world. Take a deep breath, shake it off, let it go. And I think, you know, we learn those things partly by getting triggered with our kids. 
That's great. And then that speaks a lot to the tolerance of, you know, you hear a lot in industry now about, you know, supporting the whole, you know, fail fast, allowing people to, you know, have empathy towards others to, to allow them to, to make the mistakes, to pivot, to innovate. And so it's, it's great to hear that, you know, that, you know, that people can bring that from home into the work world and that, you know, there, there, there does need to be that compassion that's brought in so that there is a tolerance because, you know, we are all humans. And in the end, um, it, it is full of people at work and it, we're not robots. And so it, it does help um, you know, help us to be successful. Well, you know, emotional intelligence is more important in our success on the job than intellectual intelligence. Because think about the things that are a problem with people that you know at work. Somebody who's just unpleasant to deal with, who's always got a negative attitude, mm -hmm. that person's not going to get promoted, let's hope. Um, you know, no one's going to want to work with that person. Somebody who procrastinates because they just can't manage their own anxiety. Now, we've all procrastinated. But I'm saying if you make that a habit, you're not going to get promoted. And that's emotional intelligence. So emotional intelligence, again, defining our terms, mm -hmm. has two foundational parts. One is, as you said, self-regulation. Knowing what's going on with us emotionally and being able to manage that, right? That's our feelings, it's our needs, it's our anxiety. But the other part of it is being able to read the cues of other people. Right. To notice what's going on with them and to get along with them well. So, you know, people who have a tin ear, uh, you know, for lack of a better way to say it, who just don't really notice what's going on with someone else emotionally, they have a much harder time in the workplace because they can't motivate people. They can't move forward on a task well, you know, they can't soothe. You know, when you're working with people on a team, you're working fast. It's like, think of it as a, a well-oiled machine. You're working fast together, but the oil keeps it all moving along. You don't have oil there and you're rubbing on each other every minute. And that's annoying and aggravating. And sooner or later, something's going to break down. So emotional intelligence is being able to add that oil and soothe ruffled feelings and offer understanding and sometimes just look at each other and start people laughing because sometimes that's all there is left to do yeah it's gotten too crazy and laughing yep. sometimes just uh you know just diffuses everything right I, yeah. i've definitely had some occurrences of that yeah uh so so dr markham is there anything else that you would like to to tell the listeners that, that you feel you know just based on our conversation that you would feel um would resonate well with them in terms of, of helping out with, with work and, and, you know, their ways of working to be a, a better individual while they're, uh, you know, looking to grow as individuals? Mm. Well, you know, there's a term coachable. Are you coachable? Mm -hmm. And people use that in the workplace a lot to, you know, somebody who is able to take feedback and run with it and grow with it. And I really like that term a lot. Like, that's how we learn. That's how we grow. So I guess I would just suggest that people reinterpret their experience when they start to feel threatened, like somebody's criticizing them, something bad has happened. Um, oh no, there's a wrench in the works. Just stop and take a deep breath and say, okay, I can be coachable with this. This is the universe giving me an opportunity to grow. I can do this and see what happens. I think you'll be very pleasantly um, I think you'll look back in three months and you'll say, wow, I'm better. I've, I've really taken my game up a notch. That's great. I think that's really good advice. The coachable piece. I, I know I try to, you know, in, in past mentors and, and they've given me that advice to, you know, that that's needed and something that's, that's definitely been helpful is, is shifting my own perspective and saying, you know, ensuring that you are coachable and you do receive feedback well, and that you do look to not only receive, but receive it, but then how do I actually implement it and action it, right? Because nothing is ever great unless you actually do something with it. Yes. And I, I should add something, Adam, because, there, you know, the thing we're always trying to get our children to do when they relate to their sibling or to us mm -hmm. is to express what they want and need without attacking the other person, right? You can yeah. tell your brother what you need without teasing him or calling him names or hitting him. Yeah. And in a way, that's what we're really also trying to learn to do. So it's being coachable. It's listening to the feedback and being willing to grow. But I also, I think people often find themselves in a position where they feel like, 
well, is it all on me? How do I, how do I get what I need here? And I think I would encourage people to recognize that they can get what they need. And there's a way to express what they want and need without it being an attack on the other person. And that is emotional intelligence, right? It is, and it's also, you know, I would, um, this is not related to children per se, but nonviolent communication talks about, I don't think it uses the same terminology I use, but it's brilliant. It is the same approach where basically you're giving someone feedback in a way that is owning what you want and need in the situation and asking if they'd be willing to do that, but you're not attacking them and making them wrong. Right. And I think so often in the workplace, people, people don't know that they can do that. So I guess that's the other piece that we didn't really talk about today because I was so focused on self-responsibility and self-regulation. But it is part of emotional intelligence is finding ways to connect with people first and then explain what you want and need without making them wrong. And that, you know, that maybe that's something we can perhaps have you back for another episode for. <laughs> it, it is a whole thing in to itself, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, that, that was amazing. Um, uh, we are at time. So thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Um, it is there any, uh, I'll put the, uh, in the notes, we'll have all the contact details for ahaparenting.com and your, you know, your contact details, but thank you so much again for joining us today. And, uh, we look forward to hopefully having you back on a future podcast. So thanks so much again for your time. It was my pleasure. All right. That's it, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today. That is a wrap on episode two and emotional intelligence with Dr. Laura Markham. Uh, fantastic, uh, conversation. If you have any comments or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us. And we look forward to you joining us for uh, future episodes. So thanks very much and talk to you soon.